Jim, appreciate your uh, word to us this morning. I think it actually go straight into communion and uh, go home after that. I, I really do appreciate those words and that encouragement. Uh, you know, um, it's a wonderful thing when people uh, learn how to pray. We, we think it comes naturally to us, and, and maybe it does, except we let all these other things get in our way. And we have to kind of put things aside and sometimes uh, teach ourselves uh, a new way to go about things. But prayer is this this wonderful, wonderful time, and it's especially wonderful when it happens in a group setting. Uh, Every Tuesday night, uh, we gather here and we spend time praying. And and I I pray every day. I, I hope you do too. But when we gather together as a as a group of believers and we pray, there's something very special about that. God is with us in a way at those times and he's not with us at others. And one of the most exciting things that I as a pastor see in this church is there really is this spirit of prayer that's developing here. I see it more and more often. Uh, Sunday school we open in prayer and we have one guy open and I close and others are invited to pray as they're led by the Spirit and there's there's no sense of any hesitation. Uh, sometimes you've been in situations like that where let's pray and nobody says anything. Here our biggest problem is maybe we need to stop them from praying. And that's a, that's a good thing. That spirit of supplication and prayer. And it's here in this body because the living God is here in our midst. I hope you realize that every time you come in here. I I know we don't always feel it. (laughs) I mean, there are things that distract us, right? I don't know what happened before you got here. I don't know how your morning was. I don't know how your yesterday was. I don't know what you're facing tomorrow. But God knows. And he's here today. And he's here for you. And he will make himself felt if you open your heart to him. So I am glad to be here today. I am glad to be a part of what God is doing here at Y Bible Church. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Paul writes this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. The unfolding of God's word brings light, brings understanding even to the simple. Would you pray with me now, please? Father, thank you so much for your grace to us uh, individually and as a church. Thank you that um, you are a God that still speaks in our days. You spoke the worlds into existence, and you still speak today. 
To those who have ears to hear, who open their hearts, you speak. And Lord, behind and under and over and through and around everything that you say to us is your love for for us. And Lord, as we come here this morning and we open your word once again, we do so in expectation that we would hear from you. Father, I know maybe better than most um, that if I come here with whatever I have, however much or little it might seem to me, I know that left in my hands it's simply not enough. It's like a little boy's lunch to feed 5,000. But I know that if you take it into your hands, then you multiply it. And Lord, you feed the souls of your people, and then it is not just enough, but it is more than enough. That's what we long for today, to hear from you, our gracious and good God. And it's in Jesus' wonderful name that we pray. Amen. So I can uh, uh, remember from days when I was very young, my brother and I and others were often there too, sitting with my grandmother, Doc. (laughs) When the sun had gone down and the day of play was behind us and looking at family pictures. (laughs) Probably once or twice a year we would do that and it continued throughout the years as we grew and even when we had children of our own until grandmother herself uh, went home to be with the Lord. Some of those pictures were in frames hanging on the wall, and we would stand in front of them, and, and she would talk about the people in those pictures, and others were in boxes, you know, shoe boxes, and she'd pull a few boxes, pictures at a time out of a box at one time, and she'd tell us about them. And I don't know if we ever even got through all the boxes, Some of the people we uh, knew, the pictures uh, were of them in their younger days, and maybe we would recognize them from those days when they were younger. Sometimes the change in them was so dramatic that we had to be told who they were, but often, uh, once we were told, we could see them in that old picture of them. Some of the pictures, uh, people in those pictures had passed on, and of those, some my brother and I maybe vaguely knew, either from our own distant memories or, or from the memories that we'd adopted from hearing others talk about them. And other people we just didn't know because they had gone long before our time. There was a real fascination uh, uh, looking at those pictures. I'm sure when my brother and me were very young, that fascination wore off pretty quickly. And even when we got older, there were other things that called for our attention. And yet, at least for a while, these pictures could be very absorbing. I think they were interesting for a couple of reasons. It gave us a sense of, I I guess I would call it... um, history. It wasn't just so much about how the world had changed. It had, of course, I mean, my dad plowed with a mule, and my grandmother lived before there were automobiles, and she knew people who fought in the Civil War. But there was a sense of connection 
that we had with all that had gone before. So this was our family that we were looking at. And then we could many times see family traits in those pictures. Sometimes we'd look at one, a picture of someone that we, we didn't even know, and we could see a quality in them that would, would identify them. And, and we'd say, oh boy, doesn't he look just like a Dyson there? Or is that a, a Harl standing next to granddaddy? And at other times, we, well, we couldn't tell you how we knew it, but we just knew that they were a Dyson or a Pews or a Harl. And I think even when we were young, we knew somehow that even though much had changed over time, the people we were looking at in those pictures were just like us. I suppose today most people gather around a television and watch family videos. It's the a, a modern equivalent of pulling photos out of a shoebox, and it's all good. You know, a couple of years ago at our annual family reunion, uh, some pictures were pulled out. And my grandmother's handwritten pages, talking about her life as she remember it, her form of a diary, were read out loud. And it was a good time, a most satisfying time, as we thought of our family and who we are. Well, this morning we're going to look at a family picture. We're going to see in it, at least I believe we can if we look, a a family resemblance. We're going to have a sense of connection with those people in that family. And we're going to realize that though times change, and sometimes dramatically they change, the people in that picture are really just like us. So I want to invite you to join me once again in the book of Revelation, the 14th chapter this time, where we're going to look at the first five verses. Uh, Revelation 14, and of course it'll be up on the uh, screen on either side of me. Now these uh, these verses really contain a description that forms this kind of image in our mind, and that's the picture I'm referring to. But this uh, picture is a, a little different than most family portraits. Our photographs are always of things in the past. This one is a picture that it comes to us in a sense from the future. Now, how far in the future, I really can't tell you, but I have a feeling that it might be a lot closer than many of us may realize. I want to begin by reading the first verse here in 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, if you'll remember, we met this group of people way back in chapter 7. And we were told then in chapter 7 that they were sealed, that God had marked them as his own. And here we see just what that sealing looked like. Uh, Jesus' name and the Father's name were written on their foreheads, just like you might write your name or have your children write their name on some item that belonged to them to identify it as your own. That's what God has done here. And we also remember that, if you do remember from back to chapter 7, that those 144,000, that was really a symbolic number, meaning something like everyone or the complete number of people were there. But we also saw them back in chapter 7. They were being sealed to protect them 
through the tribulation period. And here they are on the other side of that tribulation. They've arrived at their forever home. And although they endured many difficulties, uh, all of that's behind them now. Now they're rejoicing. And verse 2 and following demonstrate that very thing. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters, like a loud peal of thunder. And the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song. The air was filled with their sound, like the ocean, uh, the breakers at the ocean. Have you, have you ever been there? Have you ever walked there along the beach at night when all of the crowds and the music and the noise of the people are gone and, and all you hear is that sound of the waves curving and falling and it just fills the air and then it dies away and starts all over again. Or, or maybe you have heard the sound of a river as it rushes on, sounding over the rocks as it runs, and, and that constant noise of the water just fills the air and it forms a background of everything else in the sight. That's what this sound was like that John heard. And it was also enormously loud. It reminds John when he heard it of a peal of thunder. It's a sound that would grab your attention. But it's extremely pleasing. It's musical, like harps playing. It's not clear to me even now whether there really were harpists or or if this is merely a description of the voices they sang, but harp or not, there was real music going on. And this vision, this, this picture is trying to communicate something of the, of the grandeur and the beauty of the scene there. And enjoy, these people were singing their hearts out to God. And look where they were singing. Verse 3 again, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the li four living creatures and the elders. They are in heaven and they're singing to God's glory, singing before the angels and all the other heavenly beings. Majestic and wonderful would be the only words you could use to describe the, the thoughts that must rise in our hearts when we contemplate this picture. And then at the end of verse 3 tells us, something about the song they were singing. At first, when you read it, it, it might seem puzzling to you, but when you understand it, it, it kind of brings a, a, a sense of completeness or peace. And so we read this. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Only 144,000 could learn that song, and that puzzle is, is, we wonder why. It's not because the words aren't intelligible. It's not because the words have no meaning. It's because only those who have been redeemed can really know and understand and appreciate what that song meant. And that's where that fullness and that, that peace comes for us. We know in our hearts, we understand, we appreciate that the redeemed can sing a song that only the redeemed can sing. The end of verse 3 tells us something else if we look. 
you know, it's really easy to kind of read right over it. Uh, it's easy to miss it, but it's uh, because of all the glory in the passage. But it's there. It's right there. Those who were singing were redeemed from the earth. That is, they were just like us. They were sinners just like you and me. But they were de- redeemed just like you and me. Well, I suppose there may be here some who can't sing that song. At least, not yet. But you know you can. If you come to Christ, you can. It's easy. And any real follower of Jesus can tell you how, show you how. Now, I want you to know that the rest of this passage here, uh, it it tells us more about these 144,000. And since it's a family portrait, it reveals things about us. But I have to warn you that the first thing it tells us is going to seem very strange. And at first you're going to think it's not talking about us at all. But remember, this is a vision. And we learn things here through symbolism. The things we see represent truth to us often as a kind of sign. So let's read the first part of verse 4. There are those who did not defile, these are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. And, you know, we read that and we think, well, first, uh, well, John can't be talking about us. He, he's talking about men who've never married. And some interpreters think that's exactly what uh, he is saying there, and that's what it means, that this is some special class of celibate men. But you know, that really doesn't line up with the rest of Scripture. You see, men aren't defiled when they're married to a woman. The Scripture itself says so. And of course, these are men who are referred to as virgins, so they never marry. But the Scripture teaches us that either married or unmarried, that either state is the right state, depending on how God makes us. And if these were really unmarried, celibate men, it would have nothing to say to most people through the history of the church. It, it wouldn't fit the rest of the narrative here in Revelation. Not, not that it, there won't be unmarried men and women and virgins in heaven, but there will be a whole lot of other people too. You see, there's no indication either here or in chapter 7 that these 144,000 were just men except for this passage we would have said that the group was made up of, of both sexes of everyone who believed you see the real understanding comes when we remember that this is symbolism that this group of people represented by that symbolic number meaning everyone who should be there is there is faithful to the living God they're not committing spiritual adultery by worshiping the Antichrist or receiving his mark. And as verse 8 makes clear, and we'll see another time that that's exactly the case. See, they aren't guilty of idolatry. That's what the text is teaching us here. Of course, a person can commit spiritual adultery in other ways than receiving the mark of the beast. Any form of idolatry is wicked. But that's not who we are, is it? We belong to the living God. We've been redeemed. And even if we have begun to be led astray, we confess our sins and we turn from them. We're forgiven. And we're as though we have never sinned to start with. 
And verse 5 describes the people in this family portrait in more detail. First, it tells us no lie was found in their mouths. And for the last couple of weeks, we've uh, made reference to the Bible's teaching that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We saw how the Antichrist and the false prophet spoke like a dragon, that is Satan, and that those two were at heart like the devil. They are one with him because the mouth speak what fills the heart. So the fact that there was no lie in their mouths means there was no lie in their hearts. They are like our Lord, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And what comes out of their mouth is the truth that is in their heart. Verse 5 goes on to tell us they're blameless. No one can lay blame to them. No sin attaches to them. They're clean. They're righteous, they're holy, they're pure, they're faultless. Not because they were perfect, mind you, but because their Savior was and is. You know, we've already mentioned it in verse 3, that they were redeemed from the earth. And last uh, verse and uh, sentence in this verse reminds us of that when it says, they were purchased from among mankind, and offered as a first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Jesus was their Savior. They, just like us, were sinners. They needed a Savior too, and they put their faith in Christ and found in Him all and more than all that they could hope for. Verse 4 also tells us uh, about them. They followed the Lamb wherever He goes. As their good shepherd, the lamb leads them. They follow him everywhere that he goes, including to death. And they will continue to follow him forever. Now that, if you can see it, is a picture of our family. It it, it tells us the end of time when believers will live through that tribulation. And they will remain faithful to their Savior, even if it means death. They will be faithful to him. They will be true and pure. They will find themselves in the presence of the Lamb and of the Father. They will sing a song that only the redeemed can sing in joy forever and ever. And they were people, they are people just like us, sinners in need of redemption, And having found it, they became the children of the living God. And there's really only two more things for us to look at here. The first one is at the end of verse 4. Again, I don't know if you noticed it, but it says this. The group of the 144,000 were offered as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Do you know what that means? That means that there were more to follow. Others will come. Because of their witness, others will come. They too will put their faith in Jesus Christ. They will be purchased from among mankind, redeemed from the earth. They will remain faithful. They will be true and pure. They will sing the song that only the redeemed can sing. And they will follow the Lamb forever. The faithful witness of God's people brings other people to God. You know... Some of those people in this picture here in 
Revelation 14 may be our spiritual descendants. People who, who come to Christ because of our witness, because we have been redeemed and we follow the Lamb. The other thing we need to see is it takes us all the way back to the beginning of uh, verse 1 in this chapter. John writes, and then I looked. See, John's focusing our attention on something. He wants us to look. He wants us to pay attention. He wants us to understand that what comes next is the central point. It's the theme of all that he records for us in those five verses and, and really for the entire book and really for all of life. He goes on and he says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion simply means here the place where God lives. That is where the Lamb is, and that is where his people will be. But the Lamb, that's what we're to see. The Lamb is what we are to look at. It's really all about him. He's the one who redeems us from the earth, who purchases us from humankind, who, who leads us forever. It's he who keeps us faithful, who makes us true and pure, who gives us a song to sing which only the redeemed can sing. Jesus is referred to here as the lamb. He's not referred to as the king or the lion of the tribe of Judah or the son of God or the word of God, all of which are true. He's pictured here as the Lamb, reminding us that Jesus as the Lamb paid for our sins with his death. And that Jesus as the Lamb overcame death and conquered sin by his own death and loving obedience by which he left us an example to follow. So there it is, a picture of the family of Christ with all the family traits that we can see. I have a question for you. When, when you see this picture, do you see yourself in that picture? Can you, can you identify those traits in you? I mean, does your heart sing at the thought of that song that only the redeemed can sing? You look forward to that day when you will stand with Lamb on Mount Zion. If not, is it because um, you've wandered away from him? Maybe you're far from the shepherd's loving care. Are you caught in some sin and you don't know how to get out and how to get back to him? Or maybe you've never known the Savior to start with. You know that you're a sinner. You understand that you've done things you shouldn't have done, and you haven't done other things that you should have done. You know that you're not worthy of heaven, that you deserve only bad for the bad that you've done. Well, take heart. You recognize that. That's a step in the right direction because only Jesus ever was worthy. But it's not all there is. Another step needs to come. You see, the cure for both of those conditions is the same thing. Look to the Lamb. Be led by the Lamb. Put your trust in Him. He died for you. And He can make you all you will ever need to be. 
He will bring you into the family. He will draw you back to the fold. Look to the Lamb. Be led by the Lamb. It's not complicated. It's simple enough that even I can follow it. Our God is good and gracious. He saves. He redeems. Look to the Lamb. Be led by the Lamb. Would you pray with me, please? Father, it's kind of a an amazing thing to realize that from the beginning of time there's been uh, your family, those who have put their faith and their trust in you. And uh, Lord, um, that family continues into our day and will continue beyond our day and even into the tribulation period. And one day you'll gather us all together. And we'll know that we belong to you and we'll sing that song. A song that only the redeemed can sing. And even now, Lord, we look around us and we see the family traits in one another. We rejoice in what you're doing in our lives. And we want to take your message to the people around us. We want them to look to the Lamb and we want them to be led by the Lamb. We want them to live forever with us. Help us, please, to take that message with us everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, Amen. If I could get the guys that are helping with the uh, Lord's Supper to come on up.